Chapter Thirteen of an American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Anna Simon. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter Thirteen. A council of three men sat in certain rooms in Conduit Street, London. There was nothing whatever about the bachelor's front room overlooking the thoroughfare to suggest secrecy nor did any one of the three gentlemen who sat in easy chairs with cigars in their mouths in any way resemble a conspirator they were neither masked nor wrapped in cloaks but wore the ordinary garb of fashionably civilized life for the sake of clearness and convenience they can be designated as x y and z x was the president on the present occasion but the office was not held permanently devolving upon each of the three in succession at each successive meeting X was a man sixty years of age, clean-shaved, with smooth iron-gray hair and bushy eyebrows, from beneath which shone a pair of preternaturally bright blue eyes. His face was of a strong, even, healthy red. He was stout, but rather thick and massive than corpulent. His hands were of the square type, with thick, straight fingers and large nails, the great blue veins showing strongly through the white skin. He was dressed in black, as though in mourning, and his clothes fitted smoothly over his short, heavy figure. Y was very tall and slight, and it was not easy to make a guess at his age, for his hair was sandy and thick, and his military moustache concealed the lines about his mouth. His forehead was high and broad, and the extreme prominence between his brows made his profile look as though the facial angles were reversed, as in certain busts of Greek philosophers. His fingers were well-shaped, but extremely long and thin. He wore the high collar of the period, with a white tie fastened by a pin consisting of a single large pearl, and it was evident that the remainder of his dress was with him a subject of great attention. Y might be anywhere from forty to fifty years of age. Z was the eldest of the three, and in some respects the most remarkable in appearance. He was well proportioned, except that his head seemed large for his body. His face was perfectly colourless, and his thin hair was white and long and disorderly. A fringe of snowy beard encircled his throat like a scarf, but his lips and cheeks were clean-shaved. The dead waxen whiteness of his face was thrown into startling relief by his great black eyes, in which there was a death and a fire when he was roused that contrasted strongly with his aged appearance. His dress was simple in the extreme, and of the darkest colours. The three sat in their easy chairs round the coal-fire. It was high noon in London, and the weather was moderately fine. That is to say, it was possible to read in the room without lighting the gas. X held a telegram in his hand. "'This is a perfectly clear case against us,' he remarked in a quiet, business-like manner. "'It has occurred at such an unfortunate time,' said Y, who spoke very slowly and distinctly, with an English accent. "'We shall do it yet,' said Z, confidently. "'Gentlemen,' said the President, "'it will not do to hesitate. There is an individual in this case who will not let the grass grow under his feet. His name is Mr. Patrick Bellamoloy. We all know about him, I expect.' "'I know him very well indeed,' said old Z. "'It was I who put him in the book.' He rose quickly and took a large volume from a shelf nearby. It was a sort of ledger, with the letters of the alphabet printed on the cut edges of the leaves. "'I don't believe Y knows him,' said the President. "'Please read him to us.' Z turned over the leaves quickly. "'B. Bally, Bellamoloy, Patrick, yes,' he said, finding the place. "'Patrick Bellamoloy, Irish Iron Man, 
Boston, Massachusetts, drinks, takes money from both sides, voted generally Democratic ticket. P.S. 1882, opposed B. in election for governor. Iron interest increased. P.S. 1883, owns twenty votes in house, costs more than he did. That is all, said Z, shutting up the book. Quite enough, said the President. Mr. Patrick Bellamoloy and his twenty votes will bother us. What a pity J.H. made that speech. It appears that as Patrick has grown rich, Patrick has grown fond of protection, then, remarked Y, crossing one long leg over the other. Exactly, said Z. That is it. Now the question is, who owns Patrick? Anybody know? Whoever can pay for him, I expect, said the President. Now I have an idea, said the old man suddenly, and again he dived into the book. Did either of you ever know a man called Vancouver? Yes, I know all about him, said Y, and a contemptuous smile hinted beforehand what he thought of the man. I made an entry about him the other day, said the President. You'll find a good deal against his name. Here he is, said Z again. Pocock Vancouver, Railways, Republican, Boston, Massachusetts, was taxed in 1870 for nearly a million dollars. Weak character, very astute, takes no money. Believed to be dissipated, but he cleverly conceals it. Never votes. Has extensive financial interests. 1880. Text for nearly three millions. 1881. Paid $10,000 to Patrick Bellamoloy, Democrats, for carrying a motion for the Monadmink Railroad. See Railroads. 1882. Voted for Butler. Hello! exclaimed the President. Wait, said Z. There's more. 1883 thought to be writer of articles against J. H. in Boston Daily Standard, subsequently confirmed by J. H. That is all. Yes, said the President. That last note is mine. Harrington wired it yesterday with other things. But I was hurried, and did not read his old record. Things could not be much worse. You see, Harrington has no book with him, or he would know all this, and be on the lookout. Has he figured it out? inquired Y. Yes, he has figured it out. He is a first-rate man, and he has the whole thing down cold. Bellamoloy and his twenty votes will carry the election, and if Vancouver cares, he can buy Mr. Bellamoloy as he has done before. He does care, if he's going to take the trouble to write articles against J.H., depend upon it. Well, there's nothing for it, said Z, who, in spite of his age, was the most impulsive of the three. We must buy Bellamoloy ourselves, with his twenty men. I think that would be a mistake, said the President. "'Do you?' said Z. "'What do you say?' he asked, turning to Y. "'Nothing,' replied Y. "'Then we will argue it, I suppose,' said Z. "'Certainly,' said the President. "'I will begin.' He settled himself in his chair and knocked the ashes from his cigar. "'I will begin by stating the exact position,' he said. "'In the first place, this whole affair is accidental, resulting from the death of the junior senator. No one could foresee this event.' We had arranged to put in John Harrington at the regular vacancy next year, and were now very busy with the most important business here in London. If we were on the spot, as one of us could have been, had we known that the senator would die, it would have been another matter. This thing will be settled by next Saturday at the latest, but probably earlier. I am opposed to buying Ballamalloy because it is an uncertain purchase. He has taken money from both sides, and if he has the chance, he will do it again. If we were present, it would be different, for we could hold him to his bargain." We do not like buying, and we only do it in very urgent cases, and when we are certain of the result. To buy without certainty is simply to begin a system of reckless bribery, which is exactly what we want to put down. Moreover, it is a bad plan to bribe a man who is interested in iron, 
The man in that business ought to be with us anyway, without anything but a little talking to. When you have stated any reasons to the contrary, I will tell you what I propose instead. That is all. During the President's little speech, Y and Z had listened attentively. When he had finished, Z turned in his chair and took his cigar from his lips. "'I think,' said Z, "'that the case is urgent. The question is just about coming to a head, and we want all the men we can get at any price. It will not do to let a chance slip. If we can put J.H. in the Senate now, we may put another man in at the vacancy. That makes two men instead of one. I am aware that it would be an improbable thing to get two of our men in for Massachusetts, but I believe it can be done.' and for that reason I think we ought to make an effort to get J.H. in now. It may cost something, but I do not believe it is uncertain. I expect Vancouver is not the sort of man to spend much just for the sake of spite. The question of buying as a rule is another matter. None of us want that. But if the case is urgent, I think there is no question about its being right. Of course it is great pity J.H. said anything about protection in that speech. He did not mean to, but he could not help it, and at all events he had no idea his election was so near. If we are not certain of the result, J.H. ought to withdraw, because it will injure his chance at the vacancy to have him defeated now. That is all I have to say. "'I am of opinion,' said the President, "'that our best plan is to let John Harrington take his chance. You know who his opponent is, I suppose.' "'Ira C. Calvin,' said Y and Z together. "'Calvin refused last night,' said the President. "'and they've put Jobbins in his place. "'Here's the telegram. "'It's code three. he remarked, handing it to Z. "'Z read it, and his face expressed the greatest surprise. "'But Jobbins belongs to us,' he cried. "'He will not move hand or foot unless we advise him.' "'Of course,' said the President. "'But Mr. Bellamalloy does not know that, "'nor any other member of the legislature. "'Harrington himself does not know it. "'Verdict, please.' "'Verdict against buying.' said Y. Naturally, said Z. What a set of fools they are. How about withdrawing, Harrington? I object, said the President. Proceed. I think it will injure his chance at the vacancy to have him defeated now, as I said before. That is all, said Z. I think it would be dangerous to withdraw him before so weak a man as Jobbins. It would hurt his reputation. Besides, our second man is in Washington arguing a case— and, after all, there is a bare chance that J.H. may win. If he does not, we win all the same, for Jobbins is in chains. Verdict, please. Y. was silent, and smoked thoughtfully. For five minutes no one spoke, and the President occupied the time in arranging some papers. "'Let him stand his chance,' said Y. at last. In spite of the apparent informality of the meetings of the three, there was an unchangeable rule in their proceedings— Whenever a question arose, the member who first objected to the proposition argued the case briefly, or at length, with the proposer, and the third gave the verdict, against which there was no appeal. These three strong men possessed between them an enormous power. It rarely happened that they could all meet together and settle upon their course of action by word of mouth, but constant correspondence and the use of an extensive set of telegraphic codes kept them in unbroken communication. No oaths or ceremonies bound them together, for they belonged to a small community of men which has existed from the earliest days of American independence, and which took its rise before that period. Into this council of three, men of remarkable ability and spotless character were elected without much respect of age whenever a vacancy occurred. They worked quietly, with one immutable political purpose, with which they allowed no prejudiced party view to interfere. 
always having under their immediate control some of the best talent in the country, and frequently commanding vast financial resources, these men and their predecessors had more than once turned the scale of the country's future. They had committed great mistakes, but they had also brought about noble results. It had frequently occurred that all the three members of the council simultaneously held seats in the Senate, or that one or more were high in office. More than one president since Washington had sat at one time or another in the triumvirate. Secretaries of State, orators, lawyers, financiers, and philanthropists had given the best years of their lives to the duties of the council, and yet so perfect was the organization, the tests were so careful and so marvelously profound was the insight of the leaders into human character, that of all these men not one had ever betrayed the confidence placed in him. In the truest sense they and their immediate supporters formed an order, an order of true men, with whom the love of justice, honor, and freedom took the place of oath and ceremonial, binding them by stronger obligations than ever bound a ring of conspirators or community of religious zealots. The great element of secrecy as regards the outer world lay in the fact that only two men at any one time knew of the existence of the Council of Three, and these were those who were considered fit to sit in the Council themselves. Even these two did not know more than one of the three leaders as such, though probably personally and even intimately acquainted with all three. The body of men whom the Council controlled was ignorant of its existence, therefore, and was composed of the personal adherents of each of the three. Manifestly, one member of the council could, with the consent and cooperation of the other two, command the influence of the whole body of political adherents in favor of one of his friends at any time, leaving the individual in entire ignorance of the power employed for his advancement. When a vacancy occurred in the council, by death or old age of any member, one of the two already designated took the place, while the other remained ignorant of the fact that any change had occurred, unless the vacancy was caused by the withdrawal of the member he had known in which case he was put in communication with that member with whom he was most intimately acquainted. By this system of management, no one man knew more than one of the actual leaders until he was himself one of the three. At the present time, Z had been in the council nearly thirty years, and X for upwards of twenty, while Y, who was in reality fifty years old, had received his seat fifteen years before, at the age of thirty-five, a year ago one of the men selected to fill a possible vacancy had died, and John Harrington was chosen in his place. It has been seen that the three kept a sort of political ledger, which was always in the hands of the President for the time being, whose duty it was to make the insertions necessary from time to time. Some conception of the extent and value of the book may be formed from the fact that it contained upwards of ten thousand names, including those of almost every prominent man, and of not a few remarkable women in the principal centres of the country. The details given were invariably brief and to the point, written down in a simple but safe form of cipher which was perfectly familiar to every one of the three. This vast mass of information was simply the outcome of the personal experience of the leaders and of their trusted friends, but no detail which could by any possibility be of use escaped being committed to paper, and the result was in many cases a positive knowledge of future events, which, to anyone unacquainted with the system, must have appeared little short of miraculous. "'What time is it in Boston?' inquired the President, rising and going to the writing-table. Twenty-eight minutes past seven, said Y, producing an enormous three-dial timepiece, set to indicate simultaneously the time of day in London, Boston, and Washington.' 
"'All right, there is plenty of time,' answered X, writing out a dispatch on a broad white sheet of cable office paper. "'See here, is this all right?' he asked, when he had done. The message ran as follows. "'Do not withdraw. If possible, gain Bellamalloy and men, but on no account pay for them. If asked, say iron protection necessary at present, and probably for many years.' Y and Z read the telegram, and said it would do. In ten minutes it was taken to the telegraph office by X's servant. "'And now,' said X, lighting a fresh cigar, "'we've disposed of this accident, we can turn to our regular business. The question is broadly, what effect will be produced by suddenly throwing eight or ten millions of English money into an American enterprise?' "'When Englishmen are not making money, they're a particularly disagreeable set of people to deal with,' remarked Y, who would have been taken for an Englishman himself in any part of the world." And so the council left John Harrington, and turned to other matters which do not in any way concern this tale. John received the dispatch at half-past ten o'clock in the morning, after the dinner at Mrs. Wyndham's, and he read it without comprehending precisely the position taken by his instructor. Nevertheless, the order coincided with what he would have done if left to himself. He, of course, could not know that even if his opponent were elected it would be a gain to his own party, for the outward life of Mr. Jobbins gave no cause for believing that he was in anybody's power. Harrington was left to suppose that, if he failed to get the votes of Patrick Bellamalloy and his party, the election would be a dead loss. Nevertheless, he rejoiced that the said Patrick was not to be bought. An honourable failure, wherein he might honestly say that he had bribed no one, nor used any undue pressure, would, in his opinion, be better than to be elected ten times over by money and promises of political jobbery. The end rarely justifies the means, and there are means so foul that they would blot any result into their own filthiness. All that the world can write, or think, or say, will never make it honourable or noble to bribe and tell lies. Men who lie are not brave because they are willing to be shot at, in some instances, by the men their falsehoods have injured. Men who pay others to agree with them are doing a wrong upon the dignity of human nature, and they very generally end by saying that human nature has no dignity at all, and very possibly by being themselves corrupted. Nevertheless, so great is the interest which men, even upright and honourable men, take in the aims they follow, that they believe it possible to wade knee-deep through mud, and then ascend to the temple of fame without dragging the mud with them, and befouling the white marble steps." Political necessity! What deeds are done in thy name! What a merciful and polite goddess was the necessity of the ancients, compared with the necessity of the moderns! Political necessity has been hard at work in our times, from Robespierre to Sedan, from St. Helena to the Vatican, from the tea-chests of Boston Harbour to the Great Rebellion. Political necessity has done more lying, more bribery, more murdering, and more stealing in a century than could have been invented by all the Roman emperors together, with the assistance of the devil himself. End of chapter 13